go ahead and uh, get ready. A little overview. We are in our Overcomers series, subtitled Breaking Bondage in the Battle. How many of y'all got some battles that you feel like are bondage in your life? Is that real? Yeah. So we're going to talk about it. This series is all about what does it look like to properly engage the battles in a way that can break them as opposed to continue to perpetuate the strongholds that, have, that we have in our lives, all right, and in our community. A couple things we're going to be today, we're going to be tracking through the book of Ephesians. We're going to focus in on chapter 6, and we're going to bounce to different uh, aspects of the flow of Ephesians to understand how do we break the bondage. So last week, as you know, we, we walked through how spiritual warfare is a battle between the seed of the serpent, which is anything or anyone who opposes God's rule and reign. Okay, so you got that? Say the seed of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. is in opposition to the seed of the woman. Okay, and is is in opposition to the seed of the woman. Who's to say seed of the woman? Thank you, Hunja. You're following me. Yes, say seed of the woman. Seed of the serpent. In conflict with the seed of the woman. Amen. Y'all got that? That's the, that's the basic overview as we dive into the spiritual warfare. We got to know that thing. Now, the seed of the woman is God's people advancing God's redeeming reign through the Messiah to bring well-being and shalom. Okay? And so, in other words, you have kingdoms in conflict here. Kingdoms are in conflict. And so we discussed how all of this was created in Christ, and it is through him alone whereby the nations who were led astray and who chose to go astray under the influence of what we will dub the territorial spirits of Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82. You remember, if you were here on that, grab the YouTube channel. we got a YouTube channel. Sermon's up there. That's essential to lay a biblical foundation of what is going on in the unseen realm and in the seen realm. You remember what we talked about, the reality when we talk about the isms of the world are not just sociological constructs. They're sociological constructs that are deceived by, led astray by, and empowered in some degree by territorial, unseen spiritual dynamics happening. Okay? And so what we know is there's, when we, and, and so for us to begin to understand how do we engage the battle of things that, that oppress things that are unjust. All this stuff happened based on Psalm 82 from last week. Because those entities that the Most High God, the, the, the creator of heaven and earth, what he did is he laid them out and get, apportioned the nations after the fall to, and after the Tower of Babel to rule those nations. But they led, they, were led, they led the nations astray. And what happened? Then you had the isms of the world creep into the nations. So he go, basically says, so if you try to fight that battle in your own strength or in your own understanding outside of the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ being lifted up and disarming them, then you can put a Band-Aid on to a system that is full of strongholds. Is this making sense? So he lays out the foundation is that if we don't understand the, the magnitude of what's really going on here, then we're rendered impotent as the church. If the church has the answer of the one who, when he's lifted up, Jesus on the death and the resurrection of what Lord Yeshua Mashiach did when he's lifted up, he disarms those dominions and powers, and he frees the prisoner from a heart that was having a hard time. So if we don't lift him up and learn to apply him as a church, then the church will be seen as a social club that is not wrecking shop as a woke church applying the gospel. Making sense? That was last week. So here's, as we continue on and check on this, it's interesting that 
um, when we go into this concept, the book of Ephesians is one of the greatest books on spiritual warfare. So we are going to trek through it. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. It's going to rise. We're going to read this, this text together. Um, we're going to be in chapter 6, verse 10 to reference. And then we are going to jump into chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. All right, so let's go ahead and count of three. We're going to read together. One, two, three. Tattoo is overcomers engage the battle in light of victory. Overcomers engage the battle in light of victory. Father, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to spend time together worshiping. Lord, we were created to worship, and so thank you that Jesus, when you freed us from the dominion of darkness, the domain of darkness, and transferred us, as we talked about last week, into the kingdom of your beloved Son, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of hope. The kingdom of, of forgiveness where we are in your presence. When you changed us and drafted us on your team and delivered us, God, we now can worship you rightly in spirit and in truth. Lord, and so I pray that as we worship you, Lord, that you would uh, make your word clear now. May we, as the, as the text says, receive the implanted word, which is able to save our souls, able to grow us in this great salvation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would not leave the same, but that you would make your word plain as we look to you. So may every word of my mouth and every meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, my great King, our refuge, our rock in whom we trust and on whom we stand. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, a few months ago, um, when Zachariah, you know, he, he walked through this whole Kawasaki disease and they got rid of it and, uh, for some treatments. And here's the thing, when he's getting ready for that, he had to get a blood test. And so as we're getting ready, I knew that this was going to be a pretty frightening and intimidating thing to him. All right, you got a needle coming in your arm, you're four years old. You know, how do, I, how do I help get him ready? And so I, I had a feeling this is going to be a little crazy. And so what happened, I talked about him, and, um, and I prepared him for this, to get ready for this blood test. And here's the thing, if I didn't prepare him, it would not have gone well when that needle came toward his arm. I would have had to, it would have been, I would have had to hold it down and having a screaming child. And you got everybody else in the hospital like, man, whose kid is that, right? <laughs> Y'all ever been there? Am I alone? All right, so, <laughs> right, so you got, that, you got that kind of stuff going on. And so I'm thinking, if I didn't prepare him, it, it, wouldn't, have been, it wouldn't have been a nice sight. Um, but here's the thing. As I began to talk to him, I began to prepare him by saying, son, when I was young, I did this a lot. When I was young, I went through the same thing. And you know, Zachariah wants to be like daddy. And so I'm like, son, I went through all this stuff that you're going to be able to get to go to, through right now. 
You get to have... You're going to have the needle in you, and you're going to get to take a blood test. And you know what? That's what daddy has gone through before. It's I've, I've been through this when I was your age multiple times uh, when I was growing up. And, and so he began to somewhat be okay with the idea. All right. Yeah, I'm going with daddy right this is okay. This is but here's the clincher. The clincher was when we got there and we got in the seat. And then I'm thinking I'll stand next to him. And he says, no, no, daddy, can, can I sit on your lap? Right? And so I'm like, okay. You know, the phlebotomist was like, okay, you could do that. And so sit down. And, and as I'm sitting down, I ended up uh, having him sit on me. And then I, as I put my arm on the rest and had him rested my arm, his arm on my arm, and I took my hand and I held his fist uh, in a comforting thing, not in a restraining thing. And as I, as I held it there, um, I, I, I remember him going through it. And he was fine. Here's the thing. After we went through the whole Kawasaki uh, process of getting to the hospital with that, I asked him, I asked afterwards, hey, what was the hardest thing and what was the, the best thing? And so when I asked about what was the best thing, he said the blood test. <laughs> and I know he wasn't saying the blood test because he liked the needle coming in his arm. But see, there's something about he liked he liked the blood test because he remembered that I was there with him as one who had gone through it and come through the other end. And I think that's what we, in, in, in spiritual warfare, oftentimes uh, when, when we think about it is uh, if we don't understand the victory that has really happened, we get fearful when the needles of life come our way. And so, and so Paul is, what, what he's looking at is he's trying to explain to the church in Ephesus and in that region how to engage the battle in light of victory. And so as we get in, the question as we get into Ephesus is, are you engaging the battle in light of victory? And the indicator as we jump in is what happens when the needles of life come your way? When the persecutions come, when people say stuff that gets on your last nerve, when things don't happen the way you want it to happen, when, all, when you face the unjust, crazy systems of the world, as, as we were praying in Psalm 11 earlier, what, what, is, what is your response to that? And so here's what, what Paul is saying here. This is a young church in the area, in the Ephesian region. And here's, here's the thing about Ephesus. He had to teach them how to engage the battle in light of victory. Why? Because they lived in a super spiritual city. Look at the city. It was so spiritual that they had both demonic spirits and territorial spirits. Okay? If you look at Acts 19, he has, they, they were both worshiping Artemis while also casting out demons and having a whole lot of magic around the city. In fact, when people came to know Jesus, they came and they burned all their magical books. And, 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 and it was crazy. So Ephesus is an area where for them to see crazy spiritual stuff going on, like it wouldn't be uncommon probably, and we see this across different parts of the world, where people just levitate. Shamans are interacting with spirits that are over certain lands, 
right? Like, there's all this stuff going on. There are forms of power that seem powerful, but they're rooted, as we talked about last week, on the shadow of things, not the substance. So they seem powerful for a time, but they're always going to miss something. So they're, they're intimidated by many different spiritual aspects and trying to make sense. How do I make sense when I'm seeing people, demonic activity all over in people's lives? And I'm also seeing the fact that they're worshiping Artemis and Diana, and it's crazy. What do we do? So he's saying, look, in the midst of that, here's what he tells them. If we could summarize chapters 1 through 3, it's the indicative. In other words, it's living in our union with, with Christ. So he says he wants to tell them who we are. Church, who we are. In light of all that, who are we? And so he lays out 1 through 3 is living in our union with Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 is living out our union with Christ. Do you catch that? Let's say that. Chapter 1 through 3 is living in our union with Christ. Chapter 4 is living out our union with Christ. Make sense? So you're living in and who you are. You're living out what you're called to do. Okay? So this is, this is huge in this book. And so for the remainder of the series, we're going to be framing this from chapter 6 and flowing through this. Here's the thing. To, to start off with this, this, this text, it's interesting that um, when you look at this larger text we're going to be tracking through for these two months uh, in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, what you have is you have an emphasis of stand. Stand, 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 stand. And when he's saying this, you've got to ask if it's repetition, why is it there? Why is he emphasizing stand so much? He's assuming specifically that they're going to get a lot of things coming out them to try to knock them down. So he says, you're going to have stuff that's coming at you to try to knock you down and confuse the mess out of you. And he says, but I'm going to teach you how you stand. How do you stand and engage the battle to break that area of bondage versus succumbing to it every single time? He's trying to get into some of this. And so here's the thing. Let's, he says like this. If you're going to be an overcomer who is battle ready, you need to engage the battle in light of victory. So here's what he says. Go to chapter 6, verse 10. Here's what he starts off with. He says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. I love the way the ESV renders it. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Here's the interesting thing. This word, let's break down this word strong or strengthened is in the present passive imperative. You're like, what the heck does that mean? That's important because here, look at this. It's in the present and that it's not a completed action. So the command, the imperative, which is to be strong in the Lord, is not a one and done deal. It's a continual rhythm of your life to be strong in the Lord. So not only is it in the present, it's a continual action, but you're, it's a continual action that you're commanded imperative to be strong in the Lord. Not in other things. But then watch this. It's in the passive where the ESV says, but it's be strengthened by the Lord. Yeah. So the only way you have your strength, you are commanded to, in other words, to continue to, it commands us to continue to draw your strength from the Lord and his vast strength. Did you catch that? It's a continual command to draw your strength from the Lord and his vast strength. Okay? In other words, it looks how he says, he says, find your strength in the Lord. 
You need him to strengthen you, but you are commanded to be strong in the strength that he provides. So he goes on, he says, notice how he says, in the Lord. This is important. This is the language of union. Okay, we got to understand union with Christ. This is important for the life of a believer. This is the language. of it, it comes up in the book of Ephesians up to at least 40 times in some form or fashion. Whether it's with Christ, in Christ, in this, in that. It, it comes up so many times. It, it, it's significant enough language for Paul to highlight the significance of being in the Lord, and specifically in his strength. Okay, And so why is this important? Why is it important for us, he says, to command to be strengthened in the Lord? Well, it, it, why is it? It's, it's what are you up against? What you're up against, you cannot defeat and win the battle in your own strength. It's so important. He says, Paul gets a glimpse of what's really going on, and we got a glimpse last week, what's really going on in the battle. And he says, if you see what's holding people hostage and what's destroying people, destroying us, addictions, brokenness, the isms, racism, classism, uh, uh, economic not there, what, what, uh, hatred, murder, strife, envy, pride, all these things. If you knew what's behind all this complex dynamics, you would know that you can't fight this on your own. And so he says, you better be strengthened in the Lord because Christianity was never intended to be fought on our own in our own strength. Never intended to do that. In fact, creation, when we were created, man and woman in the image of God, when we were, we were never created to do it alone. And yet one of the schemes, and we'll talk about this in two weeks, the schemes of the devil, how he works in, he is going to pull people and isolate people. Independence and individualism, not healthy individual boundaries, as we'll talk about, but healthy individualism that is, is crazy is, is part of a trap of the enemy to continue to keep you to depend upon yourself. He says you won't, you won't break the barriers and bondage if you continue to believe the lie that Christianity can be viewed from an individualistic understanding. That's impotent, unbiblical Christianity. In fact, I shouldn't even call it Christianity. And so here's what he says. He says, I need you to be careful about being two things he's going to highlight. Being ignorant and being intimidated. Ignorant in the sense of not understanding how crazy this battle really is. Pretending it's not a big deal. Pretending it's just a matter of let me just try harder through life and I could break some bondage. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant or led astray to believe that. Rather, and then he says, but I also don't want you to be intimidated. I don't want you to give the enemy and all those spiritual warfare more attention and veneration that really needs to be. Don't highlight it more. And so what he's doing, he's trying to get them battle ready to say, how do we begin to understand this dynamic? And, and I think, I think uh, it, it, it's like, y'all remember coming to America? My wife used to watch coming to America all the time, right? So here's the thing about coming to America. I, I, I think it's so interesting. Is Remember Lisa's sister? She thought she had the throne, and she thought, if, is it every? No, not everyone's seen coming. Coming to America, basically here's the thing. Uh, how many of y'all have seen it? I don't want to set it up. All right. 
If you haven't seen it, go see Coming America. Um, but here's the thing. So you have, you, have, uh, you have the dynamic where Prince Akeem comes to America with his assistant or, or the guys helping him see me, his friend, right? So they come, and they're trying to go on the undercover. He's trying to live what he would deem to be a normal life, right? So he's trying to get it. He's trying to work at McDowell's, and he's trying to work at all these, these dynamics. And, and so what happens is that there's a, a, a woman, Lisa, and so he, she catches his attention. And so he gets interested in her, and they start building a relationship. And, and yet uh, her sister, Lisa's sister, now starts building a relationship with Prince Hakim's uh, friend or assistant, uh, Simi. Okay? So here's the thing. There comes this one scene. And both uh, Prince Hakim and, and Simi walk in, right? And, and his father, the king, is there. And all this dialogue comes on. And here's the gist of it is as it comes up, they start referring to Prince Hakim as the actual prince. And Lisa's sister's like, no, 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 you got it twisted. Simi is the prince, right? And you can see her face just get lost when she realizes that the one she was dating that she thought was royalty, that was going to be her strength and her end, is all of a sudden the assistant and the friend is no royalty at all. And I think it's interesting. I think sometimes what happens is that we're like Lisa's sister, right? We jump in and we find strength in things we think are going to deliver for us. If I could just get this job, if I could just get this in order, if I could just get finances in this place, these are all good. We're going to talk about that, Financial Peace University, all that. But if we say, if only I had this, then I'll be able to do what I need to do. Then God will be able to deliver me. What happens is that we find out over time that those things will always let you, let you down. And I think he's saying he's trying to prevent some hurt from them. He's trying to prevent some, this is almost like preventative ministry. It's preventative stuff that says, look, the battle cannot be addressed by you turning to these other things to be your strength. You need to get and find your strength in the Lord, okay? And so he's trying to get them to say, focus on finding your strength in the Lord. And so here's, in fact, here's what Paul is so um, passionate and sees that this is what they need to engage the battle. Look what he does in chapter 1. Go to chapter 1, verse 18 through 19. Here's what he does. He says, okay, I need them to understand that they need to find their strength in the Lord and in his vast strength, in the significance of his strength. And so here's what he does. He drops to his knees and appeals to the one who is his strength. Here's what he says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness? Did you catch this? Don't rush past this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the mighty working of his strength. He says, I want you to understand. And I'm praying that God will open your heart and your mind, will open your eyes to begin to see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He says, I, I need you to know how much power God is working toward you. He said, I, I need to pray this because... because what you're about to engage, you can't do on your own. So I need God to open your eyes to the reality of stop playing around. Stop thinking that we can do this on our own. 
He says, I, I need God to open up your hearts and minds to the power that he is working toward you. He says, I pray that the Lord will open your eyes to get this, so that two things, you aren't ignorant, so that you're not minimizing the influence and impact of the evil one in the battle, but two, as we mentioned, but you're not intimidated. In other words, you're not being fearful that he's more powerful, that, the, that Satan and his demons and the warfare is more powerful than he really is in God's sight. He says, I just, I, just, I just need to get you all some perspective of why you got to take your strength. In other words, he says, outside of the sphere of Christ, there's no ability to overcome. But inside the sphere of Christ, you have immeasurable greatness of strength that you have still yet to comprehend. Family, I think there are dimensions of God's power that he says are toward us that we have yet to see because we're still drawing strength from other things in the world. We're still drawing the bootleg areas of strength. We're still going to the semis of the world thinking that they got the hookups and the connections and they're like, man, that, it's going to let you down every time. He says, I need us to understand. It's, and, and, and I think we wrestle kind of like this story. I like this playing with an example. Let's take an old lamp. Y'all ever had a, like a, a lamp that was working that you loved, but you had to put in storage for a little while? Okay, I've done that before. Let's take a lamp. Imagine an old lamp, and you put the old lamp into storage. As the old lamp is in storage, what happens to it? It stays there for a couple years, and it's in the East Coast, so you've got humidity, and it starts to mess with the paint. It starts to mess things up and you have dust that's compounded on it, and you have all this, you have all this stuff going on, and the lamp is sitting in storage saying to the other things in storage, but, but I am a light. I, I, I can shine, right? And they're like, yeah, right, look at you. Look at you, man. You're dusty. Your paint's chipping off. No one wants you. All these voices of these other, other things that are in storage are beginning to mess with the lamp. And pretty soon, the lamp who had experienced shining bright, who had experienced some goodness, who was living out purpose, all of a sudden begins to believe that maybe he can't shine. Maybe he's broken. Maybe he's good for nothing. Maybe he needs to be kicked out. No one should get him anymore. The lamp begins to live in there, and then all of a sudden what happens is that you have, you have someone comes in and notices. What do they notice? They notice the lamp, and they're like, man, I've been looking for one of those lamps. So they grab the lamp, and what do they do to the lamp? They dust it off. And right when they plug in the lamp, the electricity of the electrical socket surges through the wire of the lamp, and now it shines again. And the lamp is living in its intended purpose. But here's the thing. The lamp could not shine in freedom the way it was intended to if it's not in union with the electrical outlets. Many of us have been unplugged. We're in situations where we've gone to other sources of strength and we're wondering, God, why can't I break this bondage? 
God, why am I so, why is this happening to me? Why am I thinking like this? Why am I feeling like this? And here's the thing. When we go outside of union in Christ's strength and start to fight it on our own, there will be no spiritual formation going on in your life. You will forget God's goodness. The enemy comes at you, whether it's the flesh, the world, or demons from the outside, or territorial spirits influencing the world are coming at you all the time saying you're not worth anything. You shouldn't get back up. You shouldn't go among the believers because they're not going to accept you. All this kind of stuff. It's not important to do that. Live your life. Find your strength in something else. All these things. And the whole time God is just saying, find your strength in me. So you can light up the way that you need to. You can live in the freedom. And this is what spiritual warfare acknowledges. The first step is saying, God, I need to recognize that if I'm not going to get my strength in the living God in Christ Jesus, the one who disarmed everything, then I have no hope to engage this battle. It won't work. And he goes down, he continues on, he says, so in other words, where do you tend to stand in the battle? Are you on the ignorant side of just not really like minimizing? Are you minimizing what's really going on and saying, I can live this Christian life in my own strength? I can do it in my own ability. I can create my own understanding of what it means to grow in Christ and in discipleship. I'll, I'll just I'll make up my own version of doing it. That's being ignorant to the schemes that the enemy creeps in. And the minute we get off point of what God is calling to, he, he, he's loving to pounce up in there. Make sense? And so are we on the ignorant side or are, are you on the intimidated side? Are you intimidated by the notion of spiritual warfare? Intimidated by if I think about the enemy, then, then maybe he'll start attacking me. I know I'm not alone on that one. Okay? Here's the thing. I need, he says, look, I need you to get two things he says about this strength. I need you to understand you can't do it on your own. And the power that is toward you is more you can measure or understand. You have access to immeasurable power in the battle through your union with Christ and his vast strength. But do, are we experiencing that? He's encouraging us to jump in that. And he says, so now, now that you see where is your, what, what, is, what is your strength, now look at what is your victory. Look at chapter 1, 20 through 21. He says this. God exercised his power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. So in other words, he's saying, he's saying, you have access, there is immeasurable power towards you. And he says, let me, let me flex that power real quick. He says, look, he exercised this power, okay, in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You recognize that language from last week? Every power, authority, dominion, all these things that were leading nations astray. He says, look, all those kind of things. He says, Christ has been uh, raised from the dead and seated far above those. Okay? And it, he exercises power in Christ. So in other words, Paul is saying, let me show you how God actually exercises this immeasurable power that he's working toward you. Let me, let me show you how he exercises this. It's like, it's like Paul is saying, let me take you to God's gym and show you the type of strength and power that we're talking about. Let me show you when God gets up and bench presses some weight. When he flexes in the mirror, he says, this is what happens. He says, look what happens. He says, when Christ 
He exercises power in Christ by raising Jesus from the dead. Hey, in other words, the same power that rose Christ from the dead is the power and strength to which he's referring to in 610. When he says, be strengthened in the Lord, he says, the strength you're to be strengthened is, is resurrected power. Did you catch that? That when God resurrected Jesus after pouring his wrath upon him that we deserved, he resurrected him with all power on that third day. He says, that's the kind of strength I'm calling you to, to abide in. That's the kind of immeasurable power that is toward you. Did you know that? The same power that rose Jesus from the dead, God's working it towards you. Think about that. That's crazy. And so he gets in, and here's the other thing. He doesn't just, it's not just some power that can magically bring someone from death to life as if that's not enough. But because that's real power, he says there's more encompassing because we also know that in the end, even the beast will perform some miracles and people will be deceived. Revelations 13, 3, okay, deception. So in the end, there's going to be some power on display. <laughs> hey, the beast is going to rise up and those who ain't strong and who are not in Christ and abiding and, 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 and secure in Jesus, which Jesus secures you, right? If we're not in him, this is going to be so deceptive that it says in Revelation 13 that the nations came after him. <laughs> he performed the miracle. His head grew back. His head was wounded. He was wounded and he was healed again. Look what he's doing. He's bringing, he's bringing these things to the world. He's uniting people in the world. All this kind of stuff. And he says, look, in the end, stuff's going to go down. So if we just view the power based on pragmatic power and not the power he's actually about to talk to, we will easily be deceived in the spiritual warfare. Because you won't have discernment. Something will look powerful, and our generation runs to power. Generations in America, we are pragmatically, and we're driven, and we run to power. Whether it's, I mean, look at them shows. Someone just put me on the power. I ain't watched it yet, but they think I look like Tommy the dude, or whatever the dude's name is, on power. You know what I'm saying? So here's the thing. Here's the thing about this, though, is that, right? Everything is about power today. How can you make the money? How can you perform the greatest spiritual miracle? How can you do? And so if we're not attuned to the right strengthening power, we're going to fail and have a hard time discerning what spiritual warfare is really going on. That's crazy, huh? So here's what he says. Watch this. He says, it's not just power that raised Jesus from the dead, but look at the type of power he's talking about. It raised him Far above, not just kind of, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's crazy. This power raised Christ up to a place of indefinite rulership and authority. He has authority over all authorities, power, dominion, ruler. This power is so immeasurable that he says any other title that has been given a name that is named, he's above that. <laughs> he says, look, any conceivable name 
that you can think about that you would associate with power, Christ, Christ is above it. Christ is exalted, as we say. Christ be exalted far above, right? Here's the thing, because he is. So when we say Christ be exalted, we're saying being lifted up in my life. May I start, may I repent from looking from these other false strengths and say, Christ, you be exalted. That means I want to find my strength in the one who is resurrected and exalted above all power, dominion, authority. That's the God I serve. I don't serve a weak Jesus that prances around the lilies. We serve not of the Lamb of God so that we can be forgiven, but I serve the Lion of Judah. And that Lion of Judah is resurrected at the right hand of the throne of God the Father far above anything that will come at the church. It won't prevail. In fact, here's the interesting thing. Daryl Bach says this in his book. He says, in fact, this authority is complete in all directions. It's over every name that is named. There is power in the naming of a known name in those days. And even today, the book of Acts speaks regularly of healing in the name of Jesus Christ. Given how important magic was in Ephesus, Bach says, uh, where Diana was worshipped, or Artemis, the remark is contextually important as well. It was common in magical context to utter a name to try to gain control of the forces being confronted. So name your name. Even they're saying, I'm going to name Diana against you. Yeah, but my God reigns above Diana. And he's going to hold her accountable because all that is is a territorial spirit that is disarmed by Jesus, and he is taking care of that. That's the name. That's the kind of name that we are in, the name above all names that one day every knee will bow to, Philippians 2 says. He says, this is all over heaven and earth. So above, as we'll talk about the territorial spirits, as we talked about last time in the, uh, the Elohim, but also the demonic realm on the earth. And so here's, here's a, th think about this. Here's an example. Um, all right, so you know I'm, I'm into Avengers, right? So Infinity Wars. In the Infinity Wars, this was interesting. It didn't matter how many superheroes were fighting at the end of the movie. When Thanos had all six stones... What he was about to do made him invincible. Once Thanos got all six stones of the, I guess it's the universe, the Marvel galaxy. Is that the right words from a Marvel people? With the Marvel galaxy. He got all six stones that represented different domains in this galaxy. The minute that he had that, that snap of the finger made him invincible. It didn't matter if Thor had him down, stabbed, ready to die. Thor missed it. The power of all the Avengers, any superhero, could not stop Thanos in that movie. Here's the thing. All he did was snap his finger and everything changed. Everything changed. Because here's the thing is when you can put all the powers of the heavens and the earth against Jesus. But when Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended above all of these, it doesn't matter how many you bring against Jesus. The greatness of his power supersedes all of them. That's the significance. He's trying to get them to say, Jesus, like, you, need some, you need some Thanos understanding. 
right? Not his character, but in that moment when he had all six stones. See, our Savior disarmed all of those dominions that were in opposition to God and come against you and your soul. He disarmed every single one, and it was through the death and the resurrection and the exaltation. So he says, that's the immeasurable power. It is ruling, reigning, victorious power that is at work toward you. You don't have to be scared of Artemis. You don't have to be intimidated by the flesh. You don't have to be intimidated by the world's systems. You don't need to be because look who your God is and what he's doing when you're in him. So when you begin to wonder, there's one thing that I think is always interesting, is you ever have that time when you begin to wonder, does Satan hear your thoughts or use them against you? <laughs> I get that question so often. Thoughts when I were talking about it last night, and it's interesting. Or, or here's, another, here's another one. Um, do you, when, when, when you only think things and not say them for fear that the evil one will infi- inflict punishment upon those whom you love. You ever wrestle with that? That's a big question. He's, is, is Satan and his demons, they observe, they see this. Are they omniscient? Are they not? No, they're not omniscient, but they do observe. So if you have someone come around saying like uh, a seance comes and says, read some tarot cards and say like, ah, I think you ate this uh, this morning for breakfast. The stuff's real. The demonic realm will, will observe stuff and they have stuff going on that we don't fully understand. But here's the thing, what I'm telling you is that when you uh, is remember that in the midst of that, Christ is greater. Even if you think, like you didn't have to worry about, does Satan hear my thoughts and then he's going to try to manipulate and mess up my day and do this and shuka shuka and doing all this like, like crazy spiritual stuff to mess with me. Man, stop that. Why? You just say, Christ be exalted. Jesus disarmed them. Your Savior, if you are in Jesus Christ, your Savior has the final say. He's greater. Isn't that crazy? That's the news. That is the foundation for warfare. Then he goes up like this in 22 through 23. He says, not only do you need to understand that, that victory and, uh, and, and asking what is your victory, but watch this. He says, now you need to be about living in your victory. Okay? Now you need about living in your victory. Look, look what he says in, in uh, chapter 1. He goes down 22, and he says, and he subjected everything under his feet. Whose feet? Jesus. God the Father subjected everything under his feet. He's already, he's already far above all. And he subjected, God the Father subjected everything under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, as head over everything. For who? The church. Which is his body. The fullness. The what? Partial? What is that? The fullness. The church is the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. In other words, he said, look, the cosmic Christ who rules and reigns and is seated above all, this cosmic Christ is given for the benefit of the church. Did you hear that? 
The cosmic Christ. Not some Jesus is walking around and we say, well, he's like this. He looked like this. No, no, no. I'm talking about the Jesus of Nazareth, of Middle East, North African area that was born in the Jewish descent to bring, to be the key of David that would unlock the ability for the nations to be a part of God's people. I'm talking, he was resurrected and is seated on high and rules and reigns over every power you think can trump the day. He rules. And he says, so look, he says that cosmic Christ is given for the benefit of the church, y'all. Is that power moving through us? Is his resurrected ruling power, do you believe that that works in and through your life? That's it right there. And so he says, he says, he is providing for the church so the church might put his victory and his redemptive character on display. When he say, in fact, Ephesians says, when he saved each of us, Scripture says he did it to the praise of his glorious grace. So what that means is, it's kind of like this. I've shared this with some of y'all, but this is a good imagery. He takes, if you got a trophy, all right, I drank the most water, okay? I put my trophy up on my trophy shelf. What, when you walk in the room, what is this supposed to show you? Yeah, I won. My accomplishment. So when God saves us, he did it to the praise of his glorious grace. So when people walk into the church, they should look at people that have been transformed by the grace of God and point to his victory. Does our life, does the church point to the victory of Jesus that sets captives free? That breaks bondage. That frees us to live in victory. That frees us to call and prophetically speak against injustice and unrighteousness. Not fearing my life because I'm in Jesus. I'm secure. That I'm going to call people. I'm going to say sin is sin. I'm going to call it out in my life. I want to love people. Call it out of my life. I'm going to love people and I'm going to call it out in others. Why? Because I'm secure in Jesus. But see, when we practically begin to take steps of faith, in light of the grace that God has done in our life, it begins to reflect the victory. So Jesus is going that. And he does this so that he might empower the church to endure, even in hard times, reflecting the redemptive and gospel-impacting culture of obedience to the king of heaven and earth. I'm giving you power to endure when everything else comes against you and saying you're not enough. Take a shortcut. Don't do this. Don't do that. Every single time. He said, look, you're going to be tempted to do all that. He says, but I'm giving you strength so you can actually reflect what I'm doing, my victory. That's the victory he's calling us to. Let's get a, a, a snapshot of this authority. Look at this authority, what happens in Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, 22 through 29 is what Jesus sees. Watch this. So he's casting out demons. He casts out a demon, and the Pharisees... When they heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebub, the rule of the demons. In other words, like Jesus, Jesus is manipulating the spirits. <laughs> he's, of, he's of the devil, and so he's playing games here, and he's casting out, he's freeing people from demon, demonically harsh and inflicting spirits by the devil himself. That's where he gets his power from. He's getting from that. So here's what it said. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, I love it, Jesus been knowing their thoughts. He told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? 
said, that doesn't even make sense. You guys aren't even making sense right here. And he says, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? <laughs> Let's evaluate what's going on with y'all too. <laughs> For this reason, they will be your judges. But he says, watch this. If I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is actually upon you. He says, wake up. Sober up. I'm doing something that's from a power and a strength that you've never seen. You're settling for this magician type stuff to try to cast out demons. I speak to them. I walk in the room and they tremble. <laughs> you see how Jesus is great? Like Jesus is so dope. He's so powerful. He walks up to the demoniac. And he says, that, that demoniac's name is Legion. Why? Because there's a legion. So many demons in this dude. Jesus walks on shore and they're like, oh, because they know who's stepping up to them. That same Jesus, that's before his death and resurrection. His ascension ruling above all before disarming. We live in the aftermath of him ruling. Do you believe that power is God gives you to live a life of obedience? I think the thing, then he goes down here, watch this. How can someone enter a strong man's house to steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? How, this is interesting. So he gets and he says, how can someone enter into a house if, and, and plunder that house if he doesn't tie up the one guarding the house? He says, you can't do it. Jesus says, so here's what he did. Jesus says, then he can plunder his house. Jesus says, look, when I came, I came up and I tied up all that demonic stuff. I disarmed them. I tied them up. They don't have the power. Why did I tie them up through my death and resurrection and ascension on high? It's so that I can plunder that house of domain of darkness. I'm coming in to the domain of darkness. I'm going to disarm and dismantle anything that would come against me from saving and delivering those who are caught in darkness. He goes behind enemy territories, saves people by grabbing them, transferring them, as Colossians says, out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what he's doing. And he says, look, you're involved in this. Go to Luke chapter 10. He says, look, Jesus did that, and now he involves us in this. Go into Luke, Luke chapter 10 real quick. 17 through 20 says it like this. He says, I'm inviting you. He's, he's involving sending out the 70 or the 72, and here's what happens with it. He says this. The 72 returned with joy. He sent them out, and they were doing incredible ministry. 72 is reflecting more of kind of what the church is going to be called to do. Okay, which is different than the apostles. So the apostles had this, but he says, I'm also sending y'all out because I'm going to invite you to participate in this. Look what he says. Look at this. The 72 returned with joy. What did they say? Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. That's crazy. They're like, how old would that is? Like, they submit to us in your name. Okay? He said to them, I watch Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
the minute we miss valuing the fact that our names are written in heaven is the minute that we start using some kind of ministry to up our own selves and we start relying on our own strength. And if you're not careful, you end up like the sons of Sceva who got beat up by that demonic dude. Because we don't, so the question is, he's saying, you got to be in Christ. Rest in your union with the victorious king so that whether, whether it comes hell or high water, if you're in difficult times, you still are focused on the fact that your allegiance and obedience is to Jesus. Victory doesn't just come when I'm prospering in American dream. That make sense? Victory comes to our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted across the globe right now. When they can endure and say, what harm has my Savior done? Take my head. That's living in the victory. Why? Because they're attached. So whatever situation you go through, you are more than conquerors. You can overcome the onslaught of anything come at you that will get you off the path of putting forth the victory that God has accomplished in your life to show off his glorious grace that he took sinners and saved us and called us on his mission. And he says, here's the thing. I've given you delegated authority. I've given you power to walk this out. See, the church is to walk this delegated authority out. And here's what I want to end with this. Sometimes we wonder, what do we do? There's a difference that we see in Scripture, as we talked about last time, between territorial spirits that are ruling, leading nations astray. Okay? You have territorial spirits in L.A. They're there. They, they, and, and you look at the history of the culture, you hear what's going on, and they're, they're there, okay? They've been disarmed, but they're still trying to wreak havoc, okay? They're, they're, they're conquered, the fight is fixed, but they're still there, and they're impact, influencing the world. And we'll talk about world flesh, uh, uh, spiritual dynamic later on in spiritual warfare. But they're there. Then you have the demonic stuff. You ever wake up in the middle of the night, and you have some pushing down on your arm or your stomach or your chest? Anybody had that before? Okay. Stuff, stuff is just real. Demonic activity is real. Okay? And the question is, how do we deal with it? And we'll talk about that. But here's a general principle here. How do you exercise delegated authority against specific things? How do you do it against the demons that are afflicting people? If a demon is afflicting people, you pray, Lord, please free this person. Lord, please free this person, okay? But then also, and this comes from time, and we're going to talk about this because some people do this wrong and inappropriate and others uh, ignore it. So we're going to wrestle through this. But then, you, then against demons, you command, in the name of Jesus, I command you to leave. Yeah. It's in the name of Jesus. Okay, we pray, Lord, deliver this person. And when it's appropriate and we'll walk through that, you command, in the name of Jesus, I command you to leave. Because that's delegated authority. The power at work in you to endure and to deal with these things. Here's the thing against territorial spirits. Here's the thing you pray. This is all in, in this book. I want you guys to look at this. Three, three crucial questions of spiritual warfare. Clint Arnold does a good job on this. Here's the thing about, against territorial spirits. He says you pray, Lord, please hinder and thwart this spirit over the city. Lord, please thwart and, and, and hinder and foil the plans of the spirit that seems to continue to corrupt sexuality in our city. That continues to keep people isolated and not experience belonging for which you've created us in Christ. Lord, foil and thwart that spirit 
Lord, it's like what Jude says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, you did it. The Lord disarms. The Lord does it. Here's the thing, though. We don't command territorial spirits. We don't have that authority. Does that make sense? You don't command territorial spirits. It's like Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel prayed to the Lord. He needed the Lord to do something that Daniel had no ability to do. So with territorial spirits, we identify, but you don't go around commanding territorial spirits. You press into the strength of the one who disarmed them. And the one who freed your flesh from going into sin when the onslaughts of life and the pressures of warfare come at you. And so here's some application here. Christ has given everything the church needs to overcome. He gave it through giving himself to the church. The church is to put on display the work of Jesus Christ here to set the captives free. Free from sin. Free from bondage. To live the life of abundant life. Not American dream. If God allows to do that, he says, I want you to funnel that into how to steward that for the kingdom cause. Okay? But, so we work towards economic development. We work against injustice, those kind of things. But he's saying, in the midst of it, if I can get you to understand he's given it to the church to put off his kingdom characteristic, then he can give you stuff to steward. Okay? And so here's the thing. He says, so he gave it, he, he gave it through giving himself to the church. When we rely upon the strength that is in our union with Christ, there's nothing that can hinder the church from overcoming the things that will hinder us from reflecting God's intended purpose for the good of all people. Since this is true, family, you can rest secure. You can rest victorious if you're in Christ. You can contend for the faith with confidence that you're on the winning side in light of this victory. It won't be easy, but we can endure. We can worship. We can live in great joy in the sorrow. We can have hope and despair. We can see addictions broken. This is the victory, family. Are you ready to engage it? This is what we're jumping into as overcomers. Because I'm tired of bondage, getting the best of us, getting the best of all around our city. God wants so much more. Church, he's given it to us. What are we going to do with the strength he provides?